0: One of the key points in Phaedrus's speech, the very first speech in the symposium, is that love brings out the best in the one who is doing the loving, the one who feels love you might actually say that this is the key theme of his speech it's not actually where he begins since he starts by talking about how love is so ancient but it's really the core of his speech and as we're going to see it's going to lead to one of the most interesting images within his speech which tends to be rather conventional you know making allusions to a bunch of things in mythology and legends but he's got this image of the army of lovers that we'll come back to in a moment now he's saying that love brings out the best in the lover so he's ignoring any sort of counterexamples that might be given where a person feeling love or desire eros in this case is going to be motivated to do bad things we'll see that get taken up in the later speeches but let's concentrate for a moment on how love would actually bring out the best in the lover Phaedrus says that it motivates us, it renders us able or turns us towards a certain kind of life, the highest, the best life. And so it doesn't just make us good towards each other or good for each other, it actually orients us towards what is best in life. Now how does that happen? This is, you know, the sort of thing that we see happening quite often in cultural productions, ranging from love poetry in the ancient period all the way to modern uh, romantic comedies. He says that it works in part by causing the lover to emulate or to take a certain bearing from the good and also to have contempt or quite literally shame, eisgune, towards the, the bad or the ignoble. The There's a little play on words occurring in in the, the Greek in there. So when a person loves, what this does is takes them out of their ordinary frame of reference where they might actually not feel contempt for the bad, where they might not feel shame in terms of certain actions, that when they're placed in the context of a love relationship where they desire another and want the beloved to look at them in a certain way, they will feel a sense of shame or where they're not properly motivated towards the good. They're they're motivated perhaps towards some other lesser good, something that is just merely pleasurable but not the good as such, not the good that's being acknowledged within this framework. And we can think of all sorts of examples where people want to make themselves a better person. We have that line that you see, I want to be a better man, I want to be a better woman for you. That's exactly what he's talking about here. So this process, he says, leads to great, megala, and and noble, Agatha, deeds. Erga, things that are done, things that a person accomplishes. Not just great and noble talk, not just great and noble imaginings, but actually doing something. And he says that this is important both for individuals and for entire political communities. That in order to accomplish great and noble deeds, which are part of the highest and best life, you have to have a proper motivation for that. So what can supply that motivation? Here's where we get another interesting sub-point that he's bringing up. Love, he says, this desire of the beloved for the lover that they're feeling, this affective state that they're being almost possessed by. It works more effectively, he says, than three other types of motivation. And this doesn't cover the entire gamut of possible human motives. Maybe we put revenge in there or other things. But this actually does cover quite a a large ground. Wealth, plutos in in Greek. The desire to earn money, not only for the sake of, of staying alive or perhaps building something, but, you know, even this inexhaustible desire that wealth can bring about in certain people. You can get a lot done with money. You can pay people to do things, but money itself will not accomplish as much as love will, at least in terms of this. It's a less intrinsic motivator, we might say, for for the person who loves. As a matter of fact, they might be willing to give up lots of wealth in order to seek out time or occasions or provide gifts or even just pave a path for the person who they're in love with. Honor. Timing. Very important conception for the Greeks. We would talk about it these days in terms of like reputation or respect, even self-respect. In a certain respect, celebrity, the way that we talk about it, could be part of what the Greeks call honor in their own time. And people will do a lot of crazy stuff for the sake of getting other people to think a certain way of them and to talk about them that way. Think about all the stunts that people have gone through in things ranging from reality television to social media to publicity stunts. But Phaedrus says, and by the way, the Greeks were probably not any less crazy in their time than we are in our time when it comes to that sort of thing. But Phaedrus is saying, no matter how effective of a motivator, the desire to be respected, the desire to be looked at in a certain positive light, or not to be looked at in a negative light is, it's not as strong as the force of love. Love can get the lover to do more. It can orient the person more consistently towards great and noble deeds than can the desire for honor or to maintain honor. Likewise, family or family connections, being in a certain family matrix, Families are indeed one of our most important institutions, uh, and they were even more so in the time of the Greeks. So there wasn't as much mobility at that time. Your family was the people who you would look to in part for this this conception of honor. But there was also a certain intimacy within the family that you you wouldn't have in the, the wide world of the polis or the political community. And family can get us to do a lot of things that are good and a lot of things that are bad. It is a strong motivator, but it's not as strong, Phaedrus again says, as the force of love. And you know, if you think about how this works, there are many instances where somebody goes against their family because they are in a romantic relationship or an erotic relationship with somebody else. This is a very interesting set of points Let's go a little bit deeper. How how does love actually work this way? He says there's two main things that this leads to. Now, of course, you know, he's running through the speech at sort of, you know, headlong pace. Um, he's not saying bullet point A, bullet point B or anything like that, but we can separate them out like that. The lover doesn't want to look Bad. They don't want to engage in anything shameful, anything that will take away from the image that they believe that the beloved, the person who they have affection towards, the person who they desire, the person that they're infatuated with, they don't want to affect that image that that person has of them negatively. So what are they going to do? As a result, they're going to behave in a good way. They're going to do the right thing at the right time. They're going to be motivated to not do anything shameful, anything that would bring opprobrium down upon themselves, anything that would make them look stupid or foolish. Or, you know, the the example that he has here is, is cowardly. For the ancient Greeks, at least for for men, but also for women to a certain degree, I mean, you can see this in the plays and the other cultural productions, The, the notion of cowardice was a sufficient motivator for many people. Don't be a coward. Get out there in the battlefield lines. It was pretty scary to go out to battle, right? And there can be many other things that might scare a person as well. You know, one of the things that they bring up quite quite frequently in examples of this sort of thing is what do you do when you're on a boat and there's a storm at sea? <laughs> you know, because there's no Coast Guard and there weren't a hell of a lot of safety provisions at that time or life jackets, there's a good possibility that if your ship founders, you're going down with it. That's when you see who really is courageous and who isn't. The lover, at least with respect to the beloved, is going to act rightly. Now, you know, if the beloved is a rather unscrupulous character, maybe they only care if the, the lover acts rightly towards them. But that's not the way most people tend to behave. And that's not the way Phaedrus is construing this. It's more like when you're actually in love with somebody and you care more about how they see you than than how all the rest of the world sees you. or what the consequences are for yourself, you're going to be willing to do noble and fine actions precisely so that you can look good in the eyes of the beloved. The way he says it is that, I will say this of the lover, should he be discovered in some inglorious act or an abject submission to ill usage, he could better bear that anyone, father, friends, who you will, should witness this than his beloved. And the same thing holds good of the beloved. The beloved doesn't want to be seen by the lover in an unworthy state. There's a little bit of an imbalance there, which we're going to explore having to do specifically with this beloved lover relationship. But that's one important way in which the person is motivated. The other is that the lover will, in fact, sacrifice themselves, not just their money, not just their reputation, but even their life for the sake of the beloved. He brings up three classical examples, ones that a Greek audience would be intimately familiar with, ones that we see appearing in dramatic productions. Alcestis is a woman whose husband is told, you're going to die, but if you can escape death, an early death, by the way, in his prime of his life, if, in fact, somebody will agree to die in your place. He asks his parents and his parents say, oh, we like being alive. And he says, hey, look, you know, uh, I'm young, you're old. It wouldn't be that much longer for you to live anyway. And they say, you know, we love you, son, but we don't love you that much. (laughs) He, you know, he's starting to realize who his real friends, family or lover is. It's his wife, Elkestis, who says, I'll die in your place. And that, for the Greeks, is a stumbling block and a stopping point. They see that sort of thing and there's a a certain glorious aspect about that. Another prime example that he gives is that of Achilles. Achilles was really kind of the golden boy of Troy, half divine himself practically. The best warrior among them, wonderful to look at, well spoken, intelligent. He's got everything going for him. And he also has a wonderful companion who he is in love with Patroclus. Now, Patroclus is an older companion and so Patroclus is actually in a certain respect the lover and Achilles is the beloved but when Patroclus goes out and fights in Achilles armor to try to you know shore up the greek defense because Hector the trojan champion is just mowing people down Patroclus is killed And this is what actually brings Achilles to be willing to go back into battle. Agamemnon had ticked him off, unfortunately, for the Greeks by really acting like a jerk. Whole long story there. But Achilles goes out, recovers Patroclus' body, and then wants to avenge Patroclus. And he's warned, if you do this, you're going to die. He does it anyway, in part because it's an expression of his love for the one who loved him. The other case in point that Phaedrus brings up is Orpheus, and Orpheus is kind of a failure in this case. Orpheus is not truly a lover. He goes down to Hades. He goes down to the land of the dead, but he goes down alive. And there's a whole interesting story there as well. When he goes down, he manages to bring back Eurydice, his wife, but it's not really Eurydice. It's just a shadow, a shade of her Aschias and she disappears so he doesn't get the beloved object in part because he's not willing to die he's not willing to go down to hades and die for her he goes down alive he kind of tricks death right so this leads us to something that is not coming up last in the speech but i wanted to treat last here this really startling image that phaedrus produces which may in fact have some historical foundation the army or the city of lovers and beloved, of pairs of people, in this case pairs of men, who have this relationship with each other and who are going to perform at a much higher level, who who can be totally relied upon because they're fighting side by side with their lover or with their beloved. So they don't want to look bad and they will sacrifice themselves for the, the person who's next to them. Phaedrus suggests that this would be an unstoppable military force. He doesn't really flesh out the idea of the city, but the idea there would be that this would somehow be an unstoppable or unsurmountable city as well. All of this goes back to this idea that love is capable of bringing out the best in the person who truly feels love. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.